So tonight, I get the privilege of hearing from my dad first, um, and I say privilege, not flippantly, it is a privilege. I grew up listening to him, he was my pastor, um, I cut my teeth on good preaching through him, and anything when you hear afterwards, I learned from him, because I'm going to preach afterwards, so you can blame it all on him, um, but no, I learned a lot from him. But before I do that, I want to introduce Matt Watson, failed to do that, he's our guest speaker this week, and we're glad to have him here, and you'll be hearing from him starting tomorrow morning. And, um, but no, I am very grateful to be able to minister with my dad and my family and friends here. Um, those of you who've been here before have sat under, sat under his preaching, have been encouraged and been pointed toward Christ as we sung about. So don't think you're going to be disappointed. I would encourage you, if you have moments, you have questions, spend time talking with him. He's a listener. That's one thing he's very good at. Um, and he has a lot of wisdom from years that God has blessed him with there. And so, Dad, if you just want to come and bless us uh, with the word of God that he has given to you. Eleven years ago, I stood up at another place, the only other place we'd been that one time, and uh, looked out at a group similar to you and gave thanks to the Lord for the privilege of our family getting to spend time with you and then just to... Um, have fellowship with you, and to have fellowship in the Word of God together. And our heart's desire is to see you know and follow Jesus, and uh, for you to raise up a generation that loves Jesus. And I think what we see tonight in the passage we'll be in, well, I trust be an encouragement to you to prepare yourself to raise up a generation that follows Jesus. The, um, we probably live in the most challenging days of my life and probably the most challenging days in the history of our nation for the church. Uh, there have been other days that have been similar, uh, but I don't know that any are quite like they are now. And uh, you will face things unless the Lord does some unusual things that uh, we don't know, and he, he can and has in times past brought revival and, and change. But um, you're facing a day when uh, you will either stand with Christ or you'll compromise to protect yourself from the consequences. There will no, if things continue as they are, there will not be an in-between. Um, so... Uh, I remember saying, <clears throat> when I was in college, my cousin and I, same age as me, and some of you have heard him preach here, and we uh, were talking about then, the days, and how challenging they were, and what's coming, and uh, I said, I don't know if I'm ready for what is coming, and I remember him saying, we've got to get ready, so we must be ready, and the Lord will help us if we love him, he will sustain us. He will preserve us. And because he preserves us, we will persevere in Christ. Now, you know the theme, pressing toward the mark? And we're going to begin this evening with some thoughts on that. Uh, How many of you are familiar with the book? This might be a dumb question in this group, but how many of you have read or are familiar with the book Alice in Wonderland? Uh, most of you, have, if you've seen the movie, I don't know if it's anything like the book. I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. But uh, you might remember the time when Alice was, of course, she's in a dream. 
She doesn't know that. And you don't necessarily know that when you begin to read. But it's a dream. And she comes to a fork in the road. And um, in a tree is the Cheshire cat with its big smile. And she looks at both directions. And she says, son, which way should I go? And the Cheshire cat says, where do you want to go? She says, I don't know. And the cat says, well then, it doesn't matter. If you don't know where you want to go, if you don't know where you're going, then not much else really matters. And you live and work among people who have no real sense of direction. You, you are a part of a generation, as I was, but in different in ways. But in, that, in this way, the same. And that is that the only direction they know is whatever the world, someone in the world has laid out for them. It could be a philosophy or ideology. It could simply be just materialism. It could be uh, athletic achievement or entertainment, whatever it may be. But there is no real sense of due north. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it certainly must not be that way for you and for me. Um, it's, It's possible. In fact, it's essential that we nail down our direction in life. That we know where we're going. That we know what we're living for. What we're seeking. What we want. Now, in some ways, we, we illustrate to the world and demonstrate to the world what we want by the way we live. By the things that are important to us that we show in our priorities in daily life. But there are those times like these where we sit and think this through. What do I want? If the Lord allows me to live till I'm 85 or 90 or whatever, where do I, what do I want to say I've accomplished? Why am I here? And one place in Scripture where this is addressed very clearly and where the Apostle Paul addresses it very clearly is in Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to look tonight at Philippians chapter 3, verses um, 7 through 16. It's a little farther, I think, than I was actually assigned, but it helps to finish out the thought. And I want us to think for the next several minutes about pursuing the prize. Pursuing the prize. Paul says, and for those of you who have either been raised in church or been in church for a bit of time, you've perhaps heard messages on this. You've even maybe memorized this passage. It is one of those passages, sort of a signature passage, one of Paul's signature passages, because it is his own personal testimony, the cry of his own heart. 
And so it is, I trust, and will be for you and for me. But beginning in verse 7, Paul says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through, the faith, in, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may be lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Or as the King James says more emphatically, this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the, same, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Pursuing the prize. And there are several things in this passage that challenge you and me in our pursuit of the prize and in the identification of the prize and living our lives in such a way as to, as Paul says in another place, obtain it. The first thing I want us to address in this pursuit, in this uh, uh, pursuit of the prize is the reckoning of your life, the reckoning of your life. Eric Little, who's pictured here to your left, my right, was known, was a, a great athlete and runner. He was actually a very great rugby player before he became well-known in Olympic lore. But he was especially known for his style of running. It, it helped that he won. But he ran with his hands flailing, not an efficient way to run at all, and his head thrown back, and just like he was completely physically thrown into the race. And there came a time in Eric's life where he had to do some reckoning, some accounting. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, it's not factual completely, but it does. It was written in such a way as to depict this reckoning. In his life. In the movie, his sister is shown as one struggling with Eric's fame and interest in athletics. It didn't quite happen that way, but it does help to illustrate what was going on with him. He was good enough to compete for the Olympics and finally be in the Olympics. But in the movie, she is, she's wanting him to throw athletics aside and goes directly to the mission field. And this whole struggle he's having, he's trying to both run and operate the mission there uh, in the United Kingdom and get ready to go to China. 
And finally, this, this struggle comes to a kind of a head between both of them. And he says, uh, um, he said, Jenny, I, I believe God's made me for China. But I've got a lot of running to do first. He said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Little had some God-given ability to have so committed himself to Christ that whether he was running in the Olympics or serving ignominiously in China, it was all the same. It was for Christ. He was pursuing another prize altogether. And it's interesting that in the contrast in that movie, you see Harold Abrams, who, of course, we would know is not a believer. He's a, he's a Jewish man, and he's struggling with the whole uh, anti-Semitism and things, and he's got something to prove. But even the movie, not written by Christians, depicts here's a man who has nothing to prove but everything to pursue, Christ. And, but it, he came to that time and he tells Jenny, he says, I've got, a, I've got a lot of running to do. He said, and, and, and there's so much. There's the mission and there's training. It's just not enough of me. That's, that's a, a very simple but profound comment. There's not enough of me. So I want you to run a mission until I finish, until after the Olympics. And so what does he do? He, in this grand pursuit, he gives himself fully. And then he's so committed to the glory of God that when he has to run on the Lord's day, he says, no. You, you see the priority. You see the tension. You see the, the uh, and if you've watched the movie, you, they do depict the reckoning that he goes through. And for every serious-minded person, every one of us, there come those times of reckoning, of considering. How do things light up? How do they count for Christ? It's in those times that it's time to, to take and to make biblical estimation. Now, Paul, in this passage illustrates for us this, this importance of biblical estimation. And he shows us how to make biblical estimation in two areas. The first is our estimation of earthly gain. Paul says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. This is not just a simple statement of Paul's personal belief. This is an expression of Paul's personal experience. And he says, whatever was gained for me, I count loss for Christ. Now, for Paul, it was religious gain. He, um, he was a Jew among Jews. All that was Jewish, all that was Israelite in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, he had performed. He had pursued and had accomplished. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He stood out. Trained under a man by the name of Gamaliel, who was among, if not the greatest or most known teacher among Jews of his day. And then, much like Martin Luther, who was 
finally confronted with the emptiness and the uselessness of his own personal effort and religion, Paul came to see that all of these things that had piled up in his favor were dead works, empty. He looked at what he had accomplished and saw it as nothing as compared to Christ and the prize. What once were esteemed as great accomplishment were now dead, works, and worthless as far as, as knowing Christ is concerned. And, and gain can come religiously. It can become professionally, vocationally, athletically, uh, socially. Gain can come in so many different ways. Personal gain. There are so many things we can put in front of Christ and what matters most. But Paul said, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss. There's that word, that word counted, the idea of calculation, estimation, reckoning. Those I counted loss for Christ. This was Paul's estimation of earthly gain. And you have to ask yourself, is that my estimation? Of earthly gain. Have I counted the cost in that way? Have I stopped to reckon the things, to think through, to calculate through the value of earthly gain? But the other area of estimation, and our other area of estimation, is our estimation of earthly goods. And he, he even goes on to say, Yes, indeed, I count all things lost. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them, New King James says, as rubbish that I may win Christ. <clears throat> so it wasn't just the gain of status and celebrity, religious accomplishment that Paul had taken estimation of, but Paul took estimation of earthly goods, all things. I count all things but loss. And again, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. You know, sometimes we use words so much we don't think of, of the significance of them, but the little word all, everything. I count everything as loss. Nothing, rubbish, manure. Is it... Is it and this is maybe a little crass, but there's a reason why what our body doesn't use is called waste. And what animals don't use is called waste. Because it's worthless. That's why the body gets rid of it. And that's why Paul uses this illustration, this word. Waste. Nothing. All things are waste. This was his estimation. No prophet was of any value. No earthly treasure had ultimate value. Paul had in his heart taken inventory and documented the value of his earthly goods and found them lacking in appeal and attractiveness. Why would Paul's estimation of earthly gain and earthly goods be so low? What made them lose their appeal to him? Because there's something with which they cannot compare. And it's in the text. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, 
my Lord. Do we stop and think of what it means to know Christ? The excellence of knowing Christ. Of having Christ. We lightly esteem the things of this world because they grow dim as we focus on Christ. And any sense of purpose must be attached to and based upon. Let me start that sentence again. Any sense of direction, purpose, pursuit must be attached to and based upon the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. This is the plumb line. This is the baseline from which every evaluation or estimation is made. How do you view Christ? And how would you have others view Him? Remember Hebrews, Hall of Faith, chapter 11, Moses. It's interesting what it says of Moses. Moses esteemed the riches of Christ or the knowledge of Christ. He esteemed Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. Because he had known all that. I mean, he was like a son to Pharaoh. He was a son to Pharaoh's daughter. So, I mean, he knew what it was to have it all and have before him the possibility of accomplishment most men would never see. And yet he esteemed Christ, the riches of Christ, greater than the riches of Egypt. Now, this reckoning came for Paul at his conversion. And I think what we see there initially is that time of reckoning Paul had when he came to Christ. I, I think, and I don't think this is, does damage to the story in Acts at all, Paul was struggling. He was pursuing Christians, but he was struggling. That's why uh, the Lord says to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul, uh, where are you going? What are you doing? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul was kicking. Paul was resisting. Paul knew that Christianity was more than he was willing to admit. Paul knew there was something there. And the Spirit of God brought him to that place on the road to Damascus. And his reckoning time came when he said, Christ, I may not have my sight and I may not have my religious gain and the stuff that goes with it, but Christ is what I want. But it also comes at other times because he says, very literally, I continually, continuously esteem them as dung, as rubbish, that I may win Christ. This is, this is a continuous thing for Paul and for you and me. Do, do you not have that? I do. I, I'll sing a hymn and uh, it will remind me. Uh, I think of, I was thinking particularly of, um, uh, be thou my wisdom, be thou my vision. Riches I heed not, nor man's. How's it go? Yeah. Um, Those songs, songs like that, others, even more modern songs, hymns, they're written, cause me again and again to make estimation, evaluation. If we set our hearts on God's purpose, on the prize, our lives 
must be this continual estimation. Now that's pause, estimation of earthly goods and earthly gain. You have to ask, what's yours? What's mine? That's the reckoning of your life. But second, there's the righteousness of your life. We sang about that tonight. Standing in his righteousness. Verse 9. He says at the end of our last section, that I may may gain Christ, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of the sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so we've already seen that religious accomplishment and activity are in themselves dead works. There is no righteousness in human effort. You don't have to excuse me, I've got to... So hopefully that won't distract you. Since you know it's there, you know it's coming, okay. Um, But if we... If our purpose is to have a purpose that is real and bigger than self, than me, than my desire, then we must have a righteousness beyond ourselves or outside of ourselves. And Paul found that out personally. Because he was touching law, Pharisee, touching the righteousness in the law, blameless. Not too many people could say what Paul said and be truthful. And Paul found out that was not, that kind of righteousness was not enough. So that's why Paul could speak with such passion, such confidence in Christ's righteousness. Once he acted from self-righteousness, he now operated from self-abasement. What was it that drove him or motivated him to pursue the prize? It was the righteousness of Christ in him. Be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And that's what must be true in your heart. If it's to motivate you to pursue the prize that God has for you. There are two aspects of that life, two aspects of that righteousness that you must know and crave. They are simply being and becoming. What you are and what you do as you flesh out what you are. First being, verse 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Being has to do with what you are, who you are in Christ. It has to do with your standing in Christ. It has, it's positional. Paul's desire is to be found in Christ. That's not something we achieve by our works, but something we are by faith in Christ. 
So we don't pretend, you don't pretend to be pursuing a prize, something biblical, a life purpose, if if you want to call it that from God, based on, say, church membership or baptism or church activity or attendance or any other kinds of religious works or good things. Even a past experience, merely a past experience, is not of, of importance if it's not the result of looking by faith in a saving way to Christ. I, I went through that personally because as a little boy I was raised, as some of you have been in church, you hear the gospel preached or some in way uh, portrayed and then maybe at the end of a service you're encouraged or even challenged or even dragged down the aisle to make some sort of outward decision. And I, I did that several times. But I had to come to see that it wasn't my experience that was the issue. It was Christ and faith in Him, looking to Him was the issue. And so if we're trying to create some enthusiasm or religious activity without a genuine saving knowledge of Christ, then it's dead works. And I will say this, I I would never presume in our group that everyone knows Christ. In a saving way. Now's the time to stop and look to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Because that's what being is about. That's what our position is about. This aspect of the Christian life. Who we are. What we are in Christ. But then the other aspect is becoming. Verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Once you are a man, a woman in Christ, then this second aspect comes into play. Not that you become more of a Christian, but that you grow in what you are. You become more of what Christ saved you to be. So you are a Christian, you are a disciple, you are a follower of Christ, but you must become a mature one. Paul came to know Christ at his conversion, but his golden life was to know him more and more. That I may know him better and better. We can never exhaust Christ. We can never exhaust a knowledge of Christ. Scripture gives us revealed truth, the person of Christ. Our brother will be sharing some about looking at Jesus in one of his messages. But we can never exhaust that. So this was Paul's passion. He never tired of referring to himself as a man in Christ. This is what it means to know Christ, to grow in Christ, to become more like Him. And as this happens, we will continuously be made conformable to His death by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is part of knowing Christ. Not just the happiness and joy and good stuff that comes, and it is all good, but being made conformable to His death. And Paul makes a statement here that on the face of it, almost sounds like he has some doubt. It's not as though he's saying, if I could somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. He simply is saying, 
Let's say you were going to come to Passion for Christ Summit. But you knew you didn't have the means to get here. But you said, I'm going. Whatever means, I'm going. Now, there isn't that effort, your own effort. But Paul is simply saying, whatever it takes, whatever in my life, whatever earthly goods or gains had to be dropped off on the side, I want to know Christ. I want the resurrection from the I'm looking forward to. <laughs> I'll wade through all the rubbish to know Christ and to attain to the resurrection by the grace of God. <clears throat> and so it is at this point that the follower of Christ must count the cost of pursuing the prize. While it is certain it is by no means, no by no means without cost. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross or her cross, and follow me. This is the path of discipleship. This is the path of growth in grace. This is the path towards the prize. And through and though Paul knew his salvation was free. He also knew the path of becoming was costly and would come with much work. And while he most assuredly knew he wanted, he most assuredly knew Christ, he wanted to know him more and more. This is the turning point for us. And I say that not because it's one time, but again and again we'll be brought to this turning point, be brought to this sense of need, of reckoning, and seeing that our righteousness is a righteousness that is far more valuable than we could ever work up in our own strength. And that because of what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ, we live a life that pursues a prize that is of inestimable value. <clears throat> Positionally, we possess the very righteousness of Christ. Practically, or what the Puritans like to call experimentally, this righteousness is being worked out day by day in you and me. This is the righteousness of our pursuit, the righteousness of the Christian life, the righteousness of your life. But third, there is the reach of your life, the reach. Paul actually uses that word, at least in the English, or words that would have meant something like that when he wrote his letter. Verse 11, <clears throat> If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. You see this tension this understanding that Christ has laid hold of you, of us, for something. And yet we are to lay hold of it ourselves. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing, this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the mark. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This prize is not found in the humanly achievable. This reach is beyond our grasp. 
A man's grasp must exceed, a man's reach must exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? I'm not sure the poet knew just what he was saying. But we're grasping for something that is beyond our reach humanly. Moses envisioned a deliverance for the people of God. Joseph envisioned an improbable future. Nehemiah envisioned a rebuilt wall and a renewed people. David envisioned a temple. All of these were daunting purposes that were achieved because they dared under God to reach. Now the Christian life is not simply a difficult life. It has its difficulties, but it's an impossible life. It's so impossible that people who try to live it without Christ wind up failing or falling. And we see it, don't we? We've known those people who have tried to live for Jesus. They may have had some sort of conversion experience or trusted Jesus as Savior or whatever they called it. And they've even gotten involved in Christian stuff. They've gotten into church. They may have even been a pastor. And then we hear, no, no more. Uh, I don't believe that stuff. Or they get involved in some immoral way or whatever. How do they express that they were not real? That they, they could not do it. I went to seminary with a fellow. Studied for the ministry. Got his PhD. Getting ready to teach in seminary setting. Blaked out. I was talking to a fellow that one of the fellow students was a little older than us, but we had all been students together. I said, what happened? He said, he wasn't real. That's because the Christian life is not just a difficult life. It's an impossible life. It can only be lived by those in Christ. And even we know the struggles we have with that life in the flesh. And so... Paul talks about here this reaching forward. This is the Christian life, always reaching forward. Wanting what God wants for us. Sometimes sensing our own inability and wondering why we aren't able to get there. That sense of drive and underachievement. There is Here in this passage, something that really is descriptive of the whole of Christian living. The first aspect of that is the process of the Christian life. And Paul says in verse 12, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. You you picture Paul as pressing on. I mean, Paul is this victorious apostle. He knows all his stuff. He wrote inspired letters. He told churches how to minister and, and fledgling ministers how to order their churches. He prayed these incredibly scriptural prayers in Ephesians and Colossians. And yet Paul says, I press on. He never entertained any notions of perfection this side of heaven. He was committed to a life of process, ever pursuing the prize, ever pursuing God's purpose for his life and enjoying the journey as God gave success. If you want a life that honors God, a life 
But we would call a successful Christian life, it's a life of process. It's a lifelong process. This is the process of the Christian life. But then there is the pursuit of the Christian life. A person who is a Christian is in pursuit of something. And Paul says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. So it was, this process was not just a flailing away hopelessly, but a pursuit of something in particular. Paul had once pursued Christians with venom and vigor. He hated them. He sought to destroy them. On the day of his conversion, he was on his way with letters authorizing him to imprison, if not kill, Christians. And then came Christ. Now he pursued Christ with all the vigor, minus the venom. Constrained by the love of Christ, Paul pursued Christ. And this pursuit was certainly the pursuit for Christ's likeness, as we shall see, and for Christ himself. It included a hunger for all that Christ had for him, to be all that God wanted him to be, and do all that Christ wanted him to do. Paul was convinced that Christ had laid hold of him for more than a free ride to heaven. More than comfort, happiness, and wealth, and health. In fact, he lost those before he died. As you read his letters toward the end, he knows the end is near. This powerful apostle is now the lowly, cold, humbled Paul, damp and dank, but still pursuing Christ. And Paul, his lifelong life purpose, lifelong purpose, was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It consumed him completely. But he was in pursuit as you and I are of something. The other aspect of this description Paul gives of the Christian life, not just for super-Christians, but for all of us, is the priority of the Christian life. And so he says, I, I like the King James. You'll find sometimes I misread here because I've memorized these things in the King James. So please forgive me. But he says, this thing I do, this one thing I do. His pursuit... The prize was his priority. It's not unusual for active people to have many priorities. If you, talk, if you read people who tell you how to, to organize your life, they will say, prioritize your life. An, an unprioritized life is a disorganized life. But it's also not unusual for Christians to be happy with past accomplishments, past experiences. We look back at those things. We can thank God for those. But Paul reaches forward. Paul's priority was moving forward. He did not say these many things I dabble in, but this one thing I do. He had many responsibilities. He made tents in order to preach the gospel and to do ministry. But all of this was in pursuit of the prize. There is something liberating 
about a prioritized life. It frees us from so many things. You know, there was a, a study, a fellow by the name of Isaiah Berlin did an essay in 1953, um, and he quoted another philosopher, but his point was that he used the fox and the hedgehog as examples. He says, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. You'll have to go study the hedgehog to find out what that big thing is. Berlin suggested that writers and thinkers and possibly all human beings could be separated into two basic groups. Those who are absorbed with one all-consuming vision, the hedgehogs, and those who pursue many disparate ends, the foxes. The fox sounds more attractive. He's more clever. Or is he? This was Paul, the hedgehog. Possibly with something called ophthalmia. By the time he's my age, if he lived quite that long, he stooped over because he's been beaten to within an inch of his life more than once. Had an out-of-body experience because he was left for dead. He would not have been attractive. But the hedgehog was moving forward. He was pursuing his priority. I don't know what you do, most of you, for a living, what you hope to do. There's one priority. The rest all fall under that. Then there's the prize of the Christian life. Verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. If a man will turn his back on earthly gain, like Eric Little, the Lord says that the Sabbath is his. And I, for one, intend to keep it that way. In the midst of royalty, I will not run on the Sabbath. That's final. Is there anything in which you have said? Is there any way in which you have said, the Lord says, and I for one intend to keep it that way. I will do this, or I will not do this. That's final. Biblically, I mean. I'm not talking about made up human stuff. I'm talking about following Jesus. So if a person will turn his or her back on earthly gain and earthly goods and look on them as so much manure, there must be some prize, some motivation for which he or she is reaching. Paul pictured himself bearing down upon the finish line. He had something in view, something that held his attention. The pursuit of God's higher purpose for his life was no empty effort. Paul need not worry about coming up empty-handed. The prize was before him. He knew he would have it. 
That's why he said, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Because it's on the other side of the resurrection. We pursue it here to there. The pursuit of God's higher purpose for his life was this apprehending, this reaching for the prize. The prize of God's call to higher things would be realized in his life until that day when he became what he sought to be. When he entered eternity, he would enjoy the blessedness of his personal investment in eternity. His prize was not an earthly attainment or any earthly attainment, but the full realization of God's purpose for him. He would become more and more like his Lord and Savior and ultimately be like him in eternal glory. Paul's personal experience of knowing Pursuing Christ is for you and for me. It is not just for apostles or preachers or professors or conference speakers. It is for us. Reach forth unto those things which are before with the knowledge that it's not a, an event. It's a process. Be committed for the long haul. Keep the goal before you. Know that Christ has called you for it. And run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, that sounds like the end. I'm not quite done. (laughs) One other thing. And that is the rest of our life. The rest, R-E-S-T, yes. When I say rest, I don't mean rest as in the remainder. I mean rest as in... Rest, assurance, reassurance. There's a passage here that, I, we, that we often stop short of because the one that sounds the most familiar to us and that we're most used to hearing is Paul reaching forth to the prize, the high call of God of Christ Jesus. And so this is true. We are reaching for this. We want to be more like Christ. We want what God has for us, reaching for it in this life, ultimately being there in eternity. But there is here something given that is... Resting, reassuring. <clears throat> it, you know, it's interesting that Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. And there's something to that here, that Christ-given rest here, in our pursuit of the prize. Like the runner who comes to the tape and breaks through, he finally has to rest, but for us the rest comes more as we pursue, in the pursuit. And this kind of a life will not be trouble-free. It will have its problems. It will have its conflicts. It will have its persecutions, its pressures. So you're going to need some assurance of rest and reassurance from God, from His Word. It's right here in the text. And so Paul says, Ah, uh, In verse 15, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Okay, so what he's saying to us is, let all of us who are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that you have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same or be of the same mind. There is here a guide for the Disciple for the Christian. 
a guide. God is in the business of developing disciples, mature disciples. And he gives, through Paul, an important guideline for those who would be mature disciples. The mature disciple is the one who has the same mind that Paul has described in the preceding verses. Do you want to know what a mature disciple looks like? Do you want to have a plumb line to look at and say, I'm pursuing maturity in Christ, I want to grow? This is it. What Paul just told us is the, the description. Maturity as a follower in Christ is a life that has a biblical estimation of its gain and goods. The mature Christian knows who he is or she is in Christ, is grateful for and confident in the righteousness of Christ and their righteousness in Christ. The mature Christian desires to grow more and more in his knowledge of and passion for Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. He or she is reaching forth to those things which are before committed to the process, pursuing God's purpose, focused on it, pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus with all of its ups and downs, success and failures. This is is the guide by which we know we are mature Christians. Don't compare yourself to others. You may learn from them, be challenged by them, but here's the plumb line. Here's the baseline. Christ's likeness comes in this package. Maturity comes in this package. This is what it looks like. This is the guide. Paul says right here, so as many as our mature have this mind. This is the mind of a mature follower of Christ. And then there is a guarantee for Christians. <clears throat> and if anything you think otherwise, in other words, if you don't think like this we just went through, your thinking goes awry, then the Lord will reveal this to you. Now, that's a touchy promise because it's not an out for the person who's just looking for an excuse to do what they want. It is an assurance, a reassurance for those, something we can rest in as those who are genuinely following Christ, that we care about this prize. We are embracing this process and pursuing this prize. If that is so, you say, well, how do I know God's will? God's will is not something that's hidden. God's, if, God's will is this. And if in your life, if you're in the Word, if you're pursuing Christ and looking to Him, and if in your life there come these things, do you not think a person who has a heart for God, who pursues Christ's likeness and want what, wants what God has for him or her, if they step into something or start moving towards something that is not glorifying to Him and is not a part of this process, that the Word of God and the Spirit of God will not smite their soul and say, hmm, put the brakes on. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. Seek the Lord and He will guide you. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's not a loophole for people who want to do what they want. This is a promise of rest. A promise to rest in. For the child of God. <clears throat> and so, the question we ask, is that me? Is that you? It's a promise for the one sincerely committed to pursuing the prize.
It's an exciting opportunity that lays before us to know Christ. To have the prize. There's a a poem by Robert Frost that I probably quoted here before. But it fits here. Let's go back to Alice and the fork in the road. Which one do I take? Where do you want to go? I don't know. And it doesn't matter. Robert Frost said it this way. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as long as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps, perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. Reckoning. And both that morning equally lay. In leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted that I should ever come back. I will be telling this with a sigh one day. Ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. God help us to reckon. To have those times of reckoning. Regularly. To stand in the righteousness of Christ, not our own. To reach for the prize, knowing that we will obtain, but committed to walking and running in such a way that we may obtain. Resting in the help and assurance of God. This is what our life is. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to live this life by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.